Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We are. We are. We are Cultivate. 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 We are Cultivate. tuning in to Weird Distractions Podcast, a weekly podcast where I, Alex, rotate between true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, and a little bit of this and a little bit of that to provide you and more than likely what your grade two arts and crafts teacher would consider a weird distraction from everyday life. This week, we are finally back to talking about a weird conspiracy theory that is out there on the internet. And before we dive into that, I do have a little bit of housekeeping and I need to discuss my need for a distraction this week. In terms of housekeeping, there is a new Weird Spam episode out now at our Here for the Weird tier over on Patreon. That is the $5 USD a month tier. And this month, I was lucky to have Celine from Not Always Polite Podcast. Some of you might remember her from earlier crossovers, but she came on. It was a riot. So if you want to hear this episode, feel free to head on over to patreon.com slash podcast, get all the extra content that's over there, and support this little weird show at the same time. Now, my need for distraction this week is there's been a lot of talk of a summer wave, or I think it's the seventh wave of COVID hitting Ontario. And as much as I am trying to keep in the news and trying to understand what's going on, it kind of freaks me out a bit because it it just feels like it's never leaving. You know, I mean, when Christy and I started Weird Distractions, we were, I think, within the first two months of COVID-19 two years ago, and now it's July of 2022. it's still kicking around. So my need for a distraction is just the fact that coming to terms that Miss Rona ain't going nowhere quick and she's just hanging around the party, even though the party is is way done. But stay safe out there where, you know, hand sanitizer, mask up if you need to. But now that that's out of the way, I think it's time to get into this week's distraction. So let's get our tinfoil hats on and get into it. So it's been a hot minute since we've chatted about a wild and weird conspiracy theory over here on the show. And to be honest, although I do love learning about different conspiracy theories out there, I find that I sometimes shy away from some of them, mostly because either they seem to be really problematic, oppressive, or they're just overly discussed. I try to stick to ones that maybe we can poke fun at, maybe ones from the past, and perhaps ones that have been proven to be true and those that are terrifyingly weird. Today's episode may just be a mixture of all of those and none of them at the same time, depending on your take on it. So pack your bags and some thick socks, grab your passports and get ready as we head on over to Plum Island, New York in the United States to discuss one conspiracy theory that will get under your skin. That theory revolves around Lyme disease and its alleged connection with the Plum Island Animal Disease Center. To break down this theory, I'm going to first chat about what Lyme disease is, the history of the Plum Island Animal Disease Center, and how these two somehow 
somehow intertwine with one another. Due to potential coarse language, adult themes, and other subject matter, listener discretion is advised. For those, like myself, who have maybe heard of Lyme disease but weren't really sure what exactly it is, here's a definition from the Center of Disease Control and Prevention website. Quote, Lyme disease is caused by the bacterium Borrelia burgdorferi and rarely Borrelia maoni. And yes, I did have to jolly phonics those words because once again, English can be challenging and those words were a challenge for me. Nonetheless, back to the quote, it is transmitted to humans through the bite of an infected black leg tick. Typical symptoms include fever, headache, fatigue, and a characteristic skin rash called erythema migrans. The rash, often described as a bullseye pattern, apparently can spread 12 inches across and may be warm to the touch according to the WebMD website. If left untreated, infection can lead to multiple symptoms such as severe joint pain and swelling, usually large joints, particularly the knees, loss of mistletoe on one or both sides of the face called Bell's palsy, heart palpitations and dizziness, severe headaches and neck stiffness due to meningitis, neurological problems, for example, numbness or tingling of the hands or feet, problems with concentration and short-term memory. From my understanding, the strain of Lyme disease has been documented in history for quite some time. In a direct quote from the Tufts Now article to elaborate, David Persing and Sam Telfor tested museum specimens of white-footed mice and deer ticks to see if they had DNA evidence of being infected with Borrelia burgdorferi, the bacterium responsible for Lyme disease. It turned out that the bacterium was circulating in wildlife long before Lyme disease became a known illness in humans. Ticks collected in 1945 from the eastern end of Long Island and mice collected in 1894 on Cape Cod were found to be infected with Borrelia burgdorferi. I bet you any money anyone that studies diseases or has any understanding of any of this more than I obviously do is probably like cringing every time I have to say <laughs> any of these scientific words but my apologies I'm trying hopefully you can find my attempts charming and not annoying if you find them annoying that's totally fine too but anyways the history of when Borrelia burgdorferi became Lyme disease or kind of more so got the name Lyme disease takes us back to the 1970s in the United States according to the Bay Area Lyme disease website during the earlier of the 1970s, a group of children and adults in Lyme, Connecticut, and the surrounding areas were reportedly struggling from an unknown health issue. This group of people suffered from a wide range of symptoms, including swollen knees, paralysis, skin rashes, headaches, and severe chronic fatigue. Doctors in the area were stumped, and therefore a lot of those affected by this unknown sickness were basically left to suffer because no one knew what was going on. In a direct quote from the Bay Area Lyme website, if it wasn't for the persistence of two mothers from this group in Connecticut, Connecticut, Lyme disease might still be little known even today. These patient advocates began to take notes, conduct their own research, and contact scientists. This is just proof that women really do make the world go round. Anyways, in the research stage of all of this, there was a commonality amongst most of the cases. Those who were experiencing this unknown sickness reported being bit by a tick in the region of Lyme, Connecticut. 
Then jumping to sometime in 1981, a scientist by the name of Willie Bergdofer was studying the Rocky Mountain spotted fever, also caused by a tick bite, when he allegedly noticed something different crawl into his investigation. He discovered that a bacterium called Spirochi, carried solely by ticks, was causing this new sickness. This new sickness would be named after the area it seemingly infested, being Lyme, Connecticut. Now, when it comes to a diagnosis of Lyme disease, that's where things seem to get a little bit more challenging. From my understanding, it seems as if the most common way to diagnose is to kind of check off all of the symptoms. So for example, the bullseye rash, the arthritis, the facial palsy, but sometimes patients won't always have those symptoms or they might have maybe one or two symptoms, but not you know, all of the symptoms that we've talked about, right? So that makes it a little bit more of a struggle to pinpoint exactly what is going on. On top of that, you also have to consider whether or not the patient has ever had tech exposure and if they can remember where it when and where they had tick exposure. Ticks are small, they can go undetected. And because of that, it makes it really challenging to necessarily pinpoint, yes, this is Lyme disease for sure. Unless somebody has all these symptoms and comes in and says, hey, I was bit by a tick 48 hours ago, it's, it's often not going to be an easy peasy lemon squeezy situation. For those listening in who are sitting there thinking, okay, what is a tick? I've never seen a tick. I come from a place where I ticks aren't common. Here's a quick description from Wikipedia. Quote, ticks are external parasites living by feeding on the blood of mammals, birds, and sometimes reptiles and amphibians. Basically, they're bug vampires that also carry disease. You may wonder, how do ticks get Lyme disease? Are they born with it? Do they come with it? Do they, you know, buy it at a store? Like, what's going on here? According to the IPAC Canada website in direct quote, ticks become infected with Lyme disease bacteria by feeding on infected wild animals, such as birds and rodents. Once infected, ticks can spread the bacteria to humans and pets. In most cases, the infected tick must attach and feed for at least 24 hours before the bacteria can be transmitted, end quote. I'm not going to lie here. I might need another distraction after this because I, as many of you know, I don't like bugs. I don't like bugs that feed off of humans and ticks are one of them. Writing these notes were really hard. So I I tried really hard to push through them. Just know that this was a lot. And on top of that, I also had to look at a lot of pictures of ticks, not a big fan, zero to 10, wouldn't recommend. But back to Lyme disease. So treatment for Lyme disease seems to be a prescription of of antibiotics based on what I came across online. There are a lot more scientific aspects behind the treatment as well as the disease itself. However, I don't wanna try and rhyme off all of that information in order to prevent any miscommunication or perhaps misinformation. And if I already have provided any of that, please let me know so I can correct it in the future. I'd recommend listening to the Science Versus podcast, which their Lyme disease episode will be in today's show notes. Now, if you're enjoying listening to weird distractions during your weekend hikes and are perhaps a bit more fearful of being bit by a tick, whether it carries Lyme disease or maybe even Rocky Mountain spotted fever, try to not fret too much moving forward. I'm going to give some tips from the Mayo Clinic website in case you come in contact with these blood suckers. So the first suggestion is remove the tick promptly and carefully by using a fine tipped forceps or tweezers to grasp the tick as close to the skin as possible. Then gently pull out the tick using a slow and steady upward motion. The website further states to try and avoid twisting or squeezing the tick. Also, in case you're feeling brave, do not handle the tick with your bare hands. I don't know why you would, but hey, maybe you are a badass and you're just like, you know what? 
let's just grab this tick with bare ass hands. Don't do that, wouldn't recommend. Once the tick is out of you, secure the tick and take a picture. A picture of the tick may help you and your healthcare provider identify what type it is and whether you are at risk of a transmitted disease. You can trap the tick in a piece of tape for disposal in the garbage. Your healthcare provider may want to see the tick or a photo if you develop new symptoms. Wash your hands and the bite site. Use warm water and soap, rubbing alcohol, or an iodine scrub. Call your doctor if you can't remove the tick or the rash gets bigger. Call if you develop flu-like signs and symptoms, or you think the bite site is infected. I can't vouch for any products, but a quick Google search will lead you to a plethora of different kinds of clothing, spray, and other tick repellent items you can buy online. Now we've talked about ticks and Lyme disease, so I think it's time to move on and discuss location of this week's conspiracy theory being that of Plum Island. Plum Island, as defined directly by Wikipedia, is an island in the town of South Hold in Suffolk County, New York in the United States. The island is situated in Gardeners Bay, east of Orient Point, off the eastern end of the North Fork coast of Long Island, end quote. Based on what I found online, the island was originally referred to as Manitouand by the Native American Pequot Nation, which eventually the island was taken over by Europeans by 1614. Shocking another location taken over by Europeans. The name Plum Island reportedly comes from the beach plums that grow nearby the shores. Sometime in 1954, the United States Army reportedly provided the island to the Agriculture Department in order to allow for further research into a cattle-related outbreak. The cattle were supposedly plagued with foot and mouth disease, which was becoming a huge problem across Mexico, Canada, and the United States. And alas, the Plum Island Animal Disease Center was born. Jumping now to 2003, the United States Department of Homeland Security purchased the island, who now still owns and primarily controls the island, including the disease center to this day. Even though the center's purpose may seem straightforward in that they investigate animal-based diseases, there still seems to be a plethora of conspiracy theories. One spokesperson by the name of John Verico was quoted in the How Stuff Works website as saying once, I've had questions about Nazi scientists, alien technology, and genetically modified monsters. I think because Homeland Security owns the island and heavily secures it, it's no wonder to me and maybe anyone listening to hear that there are some conspiracy theories out there thinking that there's more going on at the center than what actually is. From what I've gathered in my research, it appears none of the work being done on the island is considered classified. Further, in a direct quote from the already mentioned How Stuff Works website, quote, despite all the security measures, the Plum Island facility doesn't work in secrecy. We actually don't do any classified work at all, Vreco says. Our scientists publish reports on everything we do end quote. What I do know from my investigating is the following quick Plum Island facts. The inhabited parts of the island have become a refuge for birds and animals. In the winter, Plum Island reportedly becomes a haven for 600 harbor and gray seals who migrate from Canada to forage for food there, according to the How Stuff Works website. Supposedly, the beaches on Plum Island are open to the public, in which you can reportedly swim at the beach at Sandy Point Reservation. Lastly, according to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security website, Plum Island does not perform research on human diseases, avian influenza, Lyme disease, which remember this for later, or West Nile virus. Now that we've become more acquainted with the location of the conspiracy theory, let's bust out some tinfoil and talk about why we're all tuning in today. Many have speculated wildly that Plum Island may, allegedly, be responsible for Lyme disease. 
Some even think that Lyme disease was created as some kind of bioweapon and that it was either accidentally or purposefully released from Plum Island to the general public. This theory has reportedly been around for decades, but like a TikTok star, it eventually had its viral moment. This moment came out of Michael C. Carroll's book, Lab 257, the disturbing story of the government's secret Plum Island germ laboratory, which came out in 2004. Here's a little description of this book from Amazon so you can kind of get a little bit of an idea of what to expect if you decide to add this book to your cart. Quote, based on declassified government documents, in-depth interviews, and access to Plum Island itself, this is an eye-opening, suspenseful account of a federal government germ laboratory gone terribly wrong. For the first time, Lab 257 takes you deep inside the secret world and presents startling revelations on virus outbreaks, biological meltdowns, infected workers, the periodic flushing of contaminating raw sewage into area waters, and the insidious connections between Plum Island Lyme disease, and the deadly West Nile virus. The book also probes what's in store for Plum Island's new owner, the Department of Homeland Security, in this age of bioterrorism. Lab 257 is a call to action for those concerned with protecting present and future generations from preventable biological catastrophes, end quote. If anyone decides to buy that book, let me know. Let me know how you uh, may or may not enjoy it. I'm very interested to know because a lot of the reviews were... Let's just say interesting. But nonetheless, for those who paid close attention to the Lyme disease section of the episode, remember why Lyme disease is called as such? Well, it's because of Lyme, Connecticut. Now, Lyme, the town, is not that far from Plum Island. According to a quick Google search, it's only 17.3 miles, aka 27.8 kilometers away. Due to the closeness of the locations, some speculate that the Lyme-infested ticks were either released or escaped from Plum Island and headed to the town of Lyme. Mind you, there is still water between the two places, and as far as from what I found online, ticks can't swim. Thank God. Could you imagine a world where ticks can swim? That's a world I don't ever want to live in, by the way, but regardless, that's why some people think that maybe the ticks were physically brought over to Lyme, Connecticut, whether by humans or perhaps even by birds. As mentioned earlier, the island plays home, or at least hostile, to birds and other animals. Perhaps if one really wants to push the envelope, you could query if perhaps one of the Lyme-carrying ticks accidentally left the center and made its home on a bird. I bring this up because of one quote I came across from the writings of Samandra Dimitru for the New Pulse State University of New York website. Here's that specific quote. While scientists say that all animals on the island are killed to prevent the possible spread of diseases, conspiracy theorists argue that birds regularly fly between the island and the mainland and thus are able to spread any diseases they may pick up. I don't have a firm stance as to whether I think this is plausible or not. However, if it were true, it wouldn't be the first government-based experimentation or investigation to have been leaked or to leave its controlled area. Consider all the experiments done by the CIA, such as MKUltra or QK Hilltop. Although those studies consisted of tests being done on humans and had lights finally shined on them, perhaps the whole Lyme disease theory from Plum Island isn't that far-fetched or that far off. Once again, I'm not sure where I stand on this because I do see the points made by conspiracy theorists, especially considering Lyme disease continues to have so many questions surrounding it, especially for people who aren't maybe as educated or really well-versed in it. And as we know, when humans have questions unanswered, we as a species will try and fill those blanks with whatever seems to make sense. Funny enough, this conspiracy theory has even made its way into Congress, with concerns growing that perhaps this theory could be fact. 
Supposedly, New Jersey Congressman Chris Henry Smith waved this flag of concern in 2019 all the way to the top. The top being the country's Defense Department. Allegedly, Chris, along with other members of government, had put forward an amendment to order the department's inspector general to look into whether the government has ever had scientists explore and experiment with bioweapons in ticks. Further, this amendment sought out to explore whether these ticks have ever made their way out of the lab and into the public over the span from 1950 to 1975. The results were pretty clear. There were no documents providing any credibility that Plum Island Animal Center, nor the government, manifested Lyme disease carrying ticks for a bioweapon. Speaking of Lyme disease being a bioweapon, here's a quote by Sam Telford, who I mentioned earlier, from a Washington Post article that I wanted to read as I found it quite interesting. Quote, I teach a graduate course in biodefense. Biowarfare, the use of biological agents to cause harm, was once an interest of the U.S. military and that of many other countries. One of the most important characteristics of biowarfare agent is its ability to quickly disable target soldiers. The bacteria that cause Lyme disease are not in this category. Many of the agents that biowarfare research has focused on are transmitted by ticks, mosquitoes, or other arthropods. Lyme disease does make some people very sick, but many have just a flu-like illness that their immune system fends off. Untreated causes may subsequently develop arthritis or neurological issues. Issues. The disease is rarely lethal. Lyme has a week-long incubation period, too slow for an effective bioweapon, end quote. Basically, Lyme disease-carrying ticks do not make for a good bioweapon. This week's distraction will more than likely have you double-checking your legs, arms, and, well, body anytime you go into the woods. Ticks are becoming more discussed about as a nature-based threat to humans than ever before. According to the Government of Canada website, between 2009 and 2021, provincial public health units have reported 14,616 human cases of Lyme disease across Canada. Over in Connecticut, there is a reported 49,920 total cases of Lyme disease confirmed in the state from 2000 to 2018. That number may even be bigger as depicted on the Tick Check website, where it states that they estimate a total of 499,200 cases of Lyme disease in Connecticut alone. Despite the large numbers of cases of Lyme disease, as well as its history being investigated and looked at with a fine microscope, it seems as though those who have it still struggle to even get a firm diagnosis. With that being said, I kind of thought when doing my research that it was most appropriate to shine a light on those who actually struggle with Lyme disease and seemingly have to fight for their diagnosis. Although we spend a majority of today's episode talking about the conspiracy theory and all of the weird stuff associated with that, at the end of the day, Lyme disease is, is a very real thing. And I don't want to just hyper-focus solely on the conspiracy theory because it's much more than just that. In doing my research, I stumbled upon Elizabeth Hancock's story of being born with Lyme disease. Based on her writings on the LymeDisease.org website, which is reportedly ran by patients who have Lyme disease, Elizabeth's mother was unknowingly affected by Lyme disease while pregnant with Elizabeth's sibling and Elizabeth. Elizabeth and her sibling were described as being continually sick as kids and referred to multiple specialists in order to treat the presumed wide range of symptoms they were experiencing. Elizabeth wrote that eventually she was reinfected by a tick and more symptoms seemed to unfold. It sounds as if Elizabeth and her family, which once again, 
again, her brother seemingly was sick, and eventually her mother also displayed Lyme disease-related symptoms, had been on their never-ending hunt to determine what was going on for quite some time. This hunt, as I'm sure anyone who knows someone with Lyme disease or even has it knows, can be considerably overwhelming, diminishing, and frustrating. To elaborate on this, I'm going to directly quote Elizabeth's writing so that we kind of have a little bit more of a perspective from someone who has identified having Lyme disease and hear more about the frustrations that someone who might have Lyme disease or has Lyme disease has to go through in order to get an actual diagnosis. So here's a quote from Elizabeth's post, which is on LymeDisease.org. It will be in today's show notes. Quote, what pains me most is that this lifelong suffering could have been avoided had doctors listened to her, being Elizabeth's mother, and diagnosed us earlier. Even though we lived in a Lyme endemic area on the East Coast, finding a doctor that was knowledgeable and willing to treat us was like looking for a needle in a haystack. For years, although my mom consulted many orthopedic, rheumatology, infectious disease, and primary doctors with her classic Lyme symptoms, they always had diagnosed her with something else. Top specialists in New York City for neurology and rheumatology failed to recognize what was really wrong with her. My mom even specifically requested to be tested for Lyme multiple times, and the few doctors that agreed ran inappropriate tests that provided inaccurate results. She had MRIs, CAT scans, spinal tap, bone density, nerve conduction tests, and many other labs and procedures in an effort to determine what was the cause of all her health problems. Unsure of the root cause, doctors began treating her as if she had ALS, MS, or fibromyalgia with very strong narcotics. My mom kept searching for answers and finally found a rheumatologist who was highly regarded in the Lyme community. Her appointment with his doctor lasted several hours and was a very in-depth exploration of her issues. They evaluated all of her records and completed the appropriate labs and brain scans for tick-borne diseases. She was positive for Lyme, Babesia, Bartonella, and Ehrlichia. Having been diagnosed so late, my mom was completely debilitated and had severe brain inflammation. Soon after her diagnosis, my brother and I were appropriately tested and found positive for Lyme, Babesia, and Bartonella, end quote. Needless to say, it took nearly a decade, if not longer, for Elizabeth to find a diagnosis. On top of, it took probably longer for her mom to even find a diagnosis. Now it's time to summarize this week's distraction. When it comes to Plum Island Animal Disease Center and potentially having anything to do with Lyme disease, here are some facts that you can take away from today's distraction. Lyme disease has been around for quite some time and didn't necessarily originate from Lyme, Connecticut. The Plum Island Animal Disease Center has no reported connection in studying Lyme disease in ticks. To back this up, here's a direct quote from the Defense One website, quote, public records do show that scientists at Plum Island were conducting research into very similar sort of pathogens as well as delivery via insect, but not through ticks, end quote. Even with this information, there are some folks out there who are extremely skeptical, going as far as to think that the government may have created and released Lyme-infested ticks to the public. But what do you think? Do you think there is something weird going on at the Plum Island Animal Disease Center, or is this all a stretch? Comment on today's show post over on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to share your thoughts. Regardless, I'm going to post the Lyme Disease Org website link in today's episode notes for anyone who perhaps has Lyme disease and is seeking an online-based resource. And as always, you can find all of my resources in the show notes if you want to take a peek yourself. Once again, my sincere apologies for mispronouncing any of those 
big ass science words. That's what I'm going to call them because that's how I feel like they are. I'm sorry, not a scientist, just a millennial with a mic who likes to talk about weird things on the internet. So once again, my apologies for mispronouncing anything. And if I did get anything wrong in terms of information, please send me an email, let me know. I will try and address it in the next upcoming episode or whenever I have a chance to add it to a future recording. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else who will listen about the show. You can tell them to find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and many more. If you're streaming the show on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review. This helps the show out for free by letting others know that it's worth listening to. Another way to support the show for free and to never miss an update is to follow along on the show's various social media accounts. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My handle is at WeirdDistractI1 and TikTok. If you want to financially support the show and get yourself a little something extra each month, why not join one of the two tiers over on Patreon? Each month you get exclusive content such as bonus episodes and series, the Weird Destinations travel posts, plus early access to the regular feed episodes. You can find out which tier is best suited for you by going to patreon.com slash Podcast. Shout out to my current patrons, aka my weird little family members, Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Sissy, Shadow, Courtney, and Cheryl. I love you all and appreciate your ongoing support of Weird Distractions. If you're unable to support the show on a monthly basis, but still want to support it maybe as a one-time donation, check out the show's merch over on Redbubble or sign up for a one-time donation over on Buy Me A Coffee. Lastly, I want to hear from you. As some longtime listeners may recall, Christy and I released two listener story-based episodes called Listener Distractions. I'd love to keep doing this series and hear all of your weird tales of ghostly encounters, unexplainable events, and too-close-to-home true crime stories. You can email me your tales at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. As well, send me feedback. If there are any corrections that need to be made after today's episode, let me know. And as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye. Bye.